If you have your Bibles, open them up to James chapter 5. We're going to see a, eh, not a real lengthy section of Scripture, but it's, a, it's probably as long as, as most of them that we have been covering. I'm going to entitle this lesson, Lifting Anchor, Lifting Anchor. I've never been on a cruise, had some loved ones who went on a cruise recently, and uh, they were telling various things about how fun it is to be out there in the sea and all that kind of thing. And I suppose it would be, I don't know. Uh, but uh, I know that one of the things that happens on a big boat like that is that there has to be some kind of an anchoring system. There's got to be some way that you can stop that thing when it needs to be stopped. And I don't exactly know all that goes about, goes on with regards to that kind of thing. But I do know that back in the day with the big anchor, and they would drop that anchor and it would drag along the bottom until it caught on something. And then you were pretty well there. You're going to stay right in that spot. I've done a little bit of fishing and uh, I know that uh, you can do the same kind of thing when you're out on the lake or whatever it may be. And you, uh, you're stuck in that particular spot. I think that one of the challenges for the church that James is pointing to here in chapter 5 is the idea of being stuck in this world. Being so dedicated to the priorities of this world that we often feel like there's just no escaping it. Or maybe more sad than that, we don't really want to escape it because we become content with where we're at. Those of you who were here last time, you might recall that we studied in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, a rather blunt um, condemnation of the rich, that uh, they were people who were establishing themselves so much by the materialistic wealth that they have, that they've cheated other individuals, they've been, uh, they've been anchored to this world, etc., and uh, in that section, I, I told you that I felt like that we as the church, we got too much stuff and we need to downsize. And I made some uh, rather pointed applications to that. And Cindy and I are making efforts to go in that direction. I hope that you are as well, because I, I really do think that we are materialistically gluttonous in America today. And there's so much that could be done if we hadn't, if we don't, if we just didn't invest so much of our money in things that often uh, sit empty, uh, buildings that sit empty for the majority of the week. And, and our money is trapped there when it really could be invested in a much better place. Well, as you transition then into the next paragraph of James chapter 5, I believe that the Holy Spirit is making application to what he just said. Through James, he condemns this idea of being anchored to this world by having a, too much stuff. Then when you go into chapter 5, verse 7, he's going to say this, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. I think that the transition that's happening between the two paragraphs is basically a transition of application. I think he is going to say then, okay, if we're not going to be trapped by the stuff that we have in this world, if, we're, if we are going to give up the priorities of all the materialistic gluttony that we have in this world, if we're going to repent of that and we're going to do differently, then here's what you need to do, my friends. Lift anchor. And it's going to give us at least three things in the following paragraph that we as Christians can do to make sure that we are lifting anchor, that we're in the process of lifting anchor. You might recall the words of Jesus as he was addressing materialism. And he told us not to lay up treasures on earth because when you do that, thieves can break in and steal. Moths can cause it to, you know, to rot and, 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 the, and the rust. And it's, you remember Jesus making the, but do you remember how he concluded that? And he says the reason we should not lay up treasures on earth is because where your heart, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I think it's very important that we in these last days, 
And we've been in living in the last days since the first century. But I believe we're in the last of the last days, given the conditions of the world. But it's important that we recognize what Jesus said in another place when he said, few there be that find it. Meaning that there's a lot of folks who have a lot of confidence. Matthew chapter 7, 21 through 23. But Lord, Lord, did we not? And they go on and make this list of things that they did. I went to church every Sunday. I visited the nursing home uh, occasionally. I did this. I did that. And at the end of that, verse 23, it's uh, that that the, the judge says, depart from me, I never knew you. He actually calls them evildoers in that context. There are a lot of folks, I would say the majority of folks living in the world today who are living under the false assumption that they're going to go and be with the Lord forever. They've got a false confidence. And the reason they've got a false confidence, again, if you go to Matthew chapter 7, is because he says in verse, I believe it's 21, that they are not doing the will of the Father. It's not about you and I going about doing the traditionally accepted things within the church. It's about you and I doing the will of the Father. And the will of the Father, James chapter 5, is that we not be connected to this world. That we make sure that we are giving up, lifting anchor, so that whenever we are called, we're ready to go. We want to go. I'm preaching through the book of Genesis on my online lesson, and uh, it's interesting to me, the, the nomadic kind of approach that they had to life back in the, the Genesis uh, historical accounts. That they were constantly moving from this place to the, the, another place. Every once in a while they'd stop and they'd build something, but they don't last, they don't live there very long. Just discussed it in one of our chapters, I believe it's chapter 33, about Jacob doing that. That he, he built some shanties, he built some places for his livestock. But the next thing you know, they're moving on. They're constantly in in flux. They're constantly in motion. And one of the reasons for that, I'm convinced, is because they recognized, in fact, Hebrews will say this, they recognized that they were looking forward to a better place, a better time that is yet to come. I'm not sure that we in the church, the majority of us, really have that sensation any longer like we should. I know that I at times have grown complacent. And within the last five years, God had to kind of kick me in the backside and say, Sonny, you have just grown too content in your situation. You need to do this. You need to do that. And we went through some very dark times in my ministry because of my contentedness. I believe that God wants us to constantly be in motion, constantly somewhat be in flux. He's not interested in you being content and comfortable here in this world because you're not designed to stay here. And so we are constantly being admonished by the Holy Spirit within Scripture to make sure that we lift our eyes above this place and that we lift anchor so that we are ready to go, we want to go, that that's the priority, to go. Notice again, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, my brothers. And then he says, why you got to be patient? Until the coming of the Lord. Our patience plays out in the fact that we know there is a time coming when we're leaving. Our patient doesn't, patience doesn't play out because we know that we can settle in. We're going to be here for a while. This is great. I can be content. That's not what he's suggesting in verse 7. He's suggesting that our patience should be in the fact that we look forward to going. And again, I said there's three things that he's going to share with us with, by way of application. And the first is that patience. Now, I think it's worth pointing out that we are 2,000 plus years beyond this statement. And so it's probably, in a way, should ring more truly in our hearts than it ever has. Because we're closer to the return of the Lord than they ever were. And yet he says, even to you and I, be patient. Now, trying to make application to that idea of patience, 
via what he just said in the previous context, you got too much stuff. I think that one of the things he is saying is that in your stuff, you try to get content. You try to get comfortable. You try to find yourself a little spot. And so you make your little nest and you just want to stay in it. We all can relate to this. It's Monday morning. We've had a tough weekend. We don't want to go back to work. And you roll over and 630 and uh, you're so warm in your bed and you got the quilt up around your ears and everything's good, you know, and you just want to stay there. You know what I'm saying? You're just really feeling it. I want to stay in bed. I fear that that's where the church is at today. We all just want to stay in bed. And Jesus says, no, there's stuff to do, things to get after. And in your patience, you need to be promoted into action for the for the sake that the Lord's coming. He's on the horizon. What are you doing about it? Instead of snuggling in underneath your spiritual comforter, we need to be people who are constantly alert, constantly awake, constantly ready to go. We need to be vigilant. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he, it receives the early and the late rains. We live in a section of the country that is dominated by agriculture and that's good i like it i love walking or driving past the fields and seeing the green and i all of those things and the, the straight rows and and if we have mastered that area that idea as far as humanity is concerned with probably nobody on the planet is as good as the farmers of northeast arkansas as we are taking advantage of what we've got but in spite of all that we have the big equipment in spite of all that we have with the, the technology that will allow us to make our, our rice fields perfectly level, in spite of all the technology that we have, etc., etc., we still got to wait on the rain, don't we? One of my dearest friends, uh, actually the son-in-law of one of the ladies sitting back here, talks to me regularly. And as we're talking, I'll say to Justin, I'll say, well, how are we doing? He said, well, we could use a little rain. Big farmer in here, we could, be, we could use a little rain. And then, isn't that interesting that we, at the precipice of human technology in northeast Arkansas, we can produce enough rice in our area to feed the world. Imagine what we, I mean, we're the top producers of, of some of these things. And yet we still are dependent upon the rain, aren't we? Isn't that interesting? Be patient. Because in spite of how big you think you are, in spite of how advanced you think you may have become, the fact of the matter is God says, you still need me. Be patient. I'm coming. But until then, don't be content with this life. Rather, be anxious for that life. Oh, there's a joy and there's a contentment, spiritually speaking, in Christianity. I get all of that. But all of those things are wrapped up in him and the going, not in the us and the staying. And so he tells us to be patient, just like the farmer. He also says, verse 8, here's our second point. You also be patient and establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Notice that's the second time that we've referenced this idea of the coming of the Lord. Notice that everything about the passage is pointing to the coming of the Lord, not the staying of the here. And so he says, number two, don't just be patient, but establish establish now that sounds like an anchor that's what anchors do they establish you and yet the title of the last lesson is to lift anchor 
Because the point of what he is saying here again is not in the anchor to keep you here, but the anchor to pull you there. And so it's kind of like you got two anchors, one that will keep you stationary and another that's anchored in the heart of God. And he's saying, lift the anchor that keeps you stationary so that you can be pulled toward the anchor that is lodged in the heart of God and draws you in his direction. Establish your heart. That word establish carries with it, obviously, the connotation of something that is, is set. It's it, it, something that is permanent. Something that's powerfully effective in your life. Establish, he says, your hearts. There are few things that you can do as a Christian to better establish your heart than to make sure that you have a good prayer life and study life. I can't think of two more important things for you to do. Do How often do you pray? And I, I'm not just saying, you know, every once in a while you, 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 uh, you know, I don't know, you, you go by a, a situation, a fender bender, and you say, oh, Lord, take care of that. And then you move on. I'm, those are prayers. I get that. But I'm, I'm talking about the real intimate conversations with God. How often do you stop and you actually have a lengthy conversation with the Father? Not just flippantly saying, you know, God, thank you for the food. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm talking about actually having an in-depth, intimate conversation with the Father. How often do you do that? Secondly, does the Bible get opened in your home more than just on Sunday morning when we come together, Wednesday night, whenever there's Bible class? Is there a daily eating of the word of life? I, again, think that sometimes we as Christians are actually starving to, starving to death because we eat once or twice a week. We need to be establishing our heart. And there should be nothing more establishing to the heart than the discussion of one of these days he's coming back. And if he doesn't come back first, I'm going to him. There should be nothing that should thrill us more than to have that conversation. Number three, move on. Also, he says, verse eight, be patient. Establish your heart for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers. The third thing that I think is important for us to see here is that if you apply the opening paragraph, verses 1 through 6, this idea of having too much stuff, you will notice that one of the natural results to having too much stuff is to be dissatisfied. Now that sounds odd. But the more we get, the less satisfied we are. I, I can prove it to you. It's not, it's not a difficult one because you've probably seen it in your own life. But uh, the people who win the lottery. Go ahead and do some research about the people who win the lottery. And the misery that comes upon them shortly after winning all this massive amounts of money. Very few success stories do you ever have from somebody who just all of a sudden wins a bunch of money. Comes into a windfall and look at there. They're satisfied. They're dedicated Christians. They are anxious to go to be with the Father because they got a bunch of money. Those two things don't go together, do they? It's why James is very condemning of the rich in this passage is why jesus will talk about the idea that it's easier for a rich man to go to heaven than uh, or, uh, for a camel to pass through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to go to heaven because riches they tie you to this life and yet at the same time you look at it some of the most miserable people you know are financially wealthy <laughs> you know what is it about that 
Two of the richest men on the planet are planning to have a cage fight. You may have knew, knew this. I don't know whether you did or not, but they're planning to have a cage fight. And uh, odd illustration, except to say that, why would you do that? Elon Musk and some other dude, I can't remember his name, they're planning to have it. They're, they're going to stage this cage fight. And they're, they're supposedly going to duke it out for the entertainment of the world, I suppose. Well, you know, I think you get to a point when you got so much money that you're just looking for the next big thing, the next high, something that goes beyond my money. Because money does not satisfy. Wealth, materialism does not satisfy. Especially when it anchors you to this place. Now back to our point. He says, folks, don't grumble against each other. <laughs> Why would I grumble if I've got all the money in the world that I need? Because all the money in the world that you think you need is not what you need. It doesn't solve anything. In fact, it creates more problems. You go back and look at it in scripture. Many of God's people in scripture were dirt poor. Some of them had great wealth, it is true. But in those stories, you watch and you see how their wealth gets them in trouble. But you turn to the, you turn to the New Testament church and you go down the list of apostles. And what we knew, know with regards to their life via church history and that kind of thing and how they died, etc. Most of these guys died, they died penniless. They had nothing. Just like their Lord. And one of the reasons is because they were so prioritized in the going that they didn't have time to invest in the staying. And I need to learn that lesson better. Rapidly, though, I want you to see the rest of this passage. He, he tells us not to grumble against each other. And he says that the reason we should not do that at the end of verse 9 is because the, the judge is standing at the door. That's the third time we have referenced this idea of God, the Lord, coming back. As an example of suffering, he's going to talk about Job, if you see that in verse 11. Then go to verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. But let your yes be yes, your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. It seems like an odd verse to conclude this, conclude this section of the chapter because it seems so disrelated. He's really whooped up on the, the rich. And then he has said to you and I, lift anchors, don't be like the rich because it's going to lead you into grumbling against each other. And then he goes into this idea, don't swear by heaven or earth. What's the connection? Earth is fleeting. Earth is going to burn. Earth is not going to last forever. So why would you invest in it? The tragedy of Hawaii, and I don't remember which island it is. Maui? I don't know. Is that an island? Never been there, so I'm not sure. But you know the tragedy of it burning because of the wildfires and everything. Some very rich people live on that in that area and you, you got to wonder had they known a month ago what was going to take place this past week would they have built their house there would they have invested in that beachfront property if they had known them no they wouldn't well i'm here to tell you that god says it's going to burn the planet's going to burn everything that you and i have collected and put away in our little storage bins it's going to burn. Why then are we invested so heavily in it? If I can assure you, it ain't going to last. He tells us here, don't swear by heaven or earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes, your no be no. Because the only one worthy of 
if you will, swearing by, giving credit to, saying that's that that's that is what establishes my truth is God. Because He's eternal. The rest of it's going to burn. So I think the conclusion of this chapter, verse twelve, this this section, excuse me, verse twelve, is to say, don't place your confidence in stuff. Lift your anchor and recognize that your confidence is in that which is to come. He who holds the future in his hand, that's where we place our confidence.